If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone. I wanted to take this opportunity on behalf of Penguin and Viking Books to welcome you all and to thank you for joining us for this very special celebratory event. William Trevor is the author of 14 much-lauded novels. He won the Whitbread Prize three times and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize four times. This Thursday, we're publishing his final collected works, Last Stories, of which over the weekend, the Sunday Times put it perfectly in saying, published to coincide with the 90th anniversary of William Trevor's birth, this book is a reminder of what we lost when he died two years ago. Its 10 stories bring a literary career that lasted more than half a century to a consummate conclusion. We've invited four guests here this evening to read from their favourite passages from his works and discuss why he's recognised as one of the greatest short story writers in the English language. Di Spears is the book's editor of BBC Radio. She has directed a large number of William Trevor's novels and short stories for Radio 4's Book at Bedtime, and tonight we'll be reading from The Ballroom of Romance. Kevin Barry is the author of the story collections Dark Lies the Island and There Are Little Kingdoms and the novels Boodlebone and City of Bohane. He is reading a passage from William Trevor's new book, Last Stories. Hermione Lee is a biographer whose works include Virginia Woolf, Edith Wharton and Penelope Fitzgerald. She has been president of Wilson's College Oxford for the last nine years and tonight will be reading from Reading Turgenev. And finally, Sally Vickers is the author of many novels, including Mrs. Garnet's Angel, The Cleaner of Charters, and Cousins. Her new book, The Librarian, was published in April this year. Sally will read from My House in Umbria. It was when Hannah asked me to choose a story that really mattered to me. and um, I mean, there were so many that I could have picked. I've loved William Trevor's work for a very long time. But it seemed to me that I should, I should take one from... Uh, the very first collection I ever read, and in fact the first uh, story of William Trevor's that I ever read, when I was 19 and sitting on a pier in Fife. And a boy, who I cared about at the time, gave me this book. This was the best thing he gave me. (laughs) 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 And um, of course at that moment I was in a romantic frame of mind, so of course I turned to the ballroom of romance to read. And I think, you know, I was 19, I was young, I was green. And this story blew me away. And I think I owe to it not only my absolute love of everything that William Trevor has written and the author himself, but also my abiding love of the short story because it showed me what a short story could do in its economy, its kind of, its glance across a world and its opening up of all these people. And it it was a very, um, it's remained with me. And it's a story I've recorded for radio twice, actually, in two different lengths of version. And I'm going to read a bit from it now. I'm going to read from the middle of the story. I'm sure many of you know it, but in it, a, a, a woman no longer young, at 36, a woman called Bridie, has gone to a wayside 
dance hall, as it used to uh, be across rural Ireland. And she's gone in search of a little escape from her one-legged father, who she lives with alone and cares for, and from the farm work, and in search of a little romance still, although much of her hopes already faded. And at this point in the story, she's looking at Dan O'Ryan, who is one of the members of the band, and wondering if this might be the last hope. And please excuse the Irish accent. I've worked with wonderful Irish actors for years on William Trout, and I'm very aware I'm sitting next to Kevin. <laughs> so I'm not going to do one, but um, don't wince when I get to the dialogue bit. <laughs> when first she danced in the ballroom of romance, when she was just 16, Dan O'Ryan had been there also, four years older than she was. She'd hardly noticed him then, because of his not being one of the dancers. The youths who danced with her then, in their Saturday night blue suits, had disappeared into the town or to Dublin or Britain, leaving behind them those who became the middle-aged bachelors of the hills. There'd been a boy called Patrick Grady, whom she had loved in those days. Week after week, she'd ridden away from the ballroom of romance with the image of his face in her mind, a thin face, pale beneath black hair. It had been different, dancing with Patrick Grady, and she'd felt that he found it different dancing with her, although he'd never said so. Often they'd stood together drinking lemonade, not saying anything, not knowing what to say. She knew he loved her, and she believed then that he would lead her one day from the dim romantic ballroom, from its blueness and its pinkness and its crystal bowl of light and its music. She believed he would lead her into sunshine, to the town, to the church of Our Lady Queen of Heaven, to marriage and smiling faces. But someone else had got Patrick Grady, a girl from the town who'd never danced in the wayside ballroom. She'd scooped up Patrick Grady when he didn't have a chance. Bridie had wept hearing that. Someone had told her later on that he'd crossed to Britain, to Wolverhampton, with the girl he'd married. And she imagined him there, in a place she wasn't able properly to visualise, labouring in a factory, his children being born and acquiring the accent of the area. The ballroom of romance wasn't the same without him. And when no one else stood out for her particularly over the years, and when no one offered her marriage, she found herself wondering about Dan O'Ryan. If you couldn't have love, the next best thing was surely a decent man. The night he'd blown up the tyre of her bicycle, she'd thought he was going to kiss her. Often she'd been kissed by Bowser Egan on the nights when he insisted on riding part of the way home with her. She'd been kissed as well, in similar circumstances, by Eyes Horgan and Tim Daly. She'd gone into fields with them and permitted them to put their arms about her while heavily they breathed. Mr Maloney, Mr Swanton and Dan O'Ryan approached. You sang the last one beautifully, Bridie said to Dan O'Ryan. Isn't it a beautiful song? I hear they're starting a cement factory, said Mr Maloney. There's stuff called Optrex, Bridie said quietly to Dan O'Ryan, who was having trouble with his eyes, that my father took the time he had a cold in his eyes. Ah, sure, it doesn't worry me that much. I have a drop of it left, Dan I could bring it over on Saturday, the eye stuff. Ah, don't worry yourself, Bridie. Mrs Griffin has, given, has fixed me up for a test with Dr Creedy. He looked away while he said that, and she knew at once that Mrs. Griffin was arranging to marry him. It was a natural outcome, for Mrs. Griffin had all the chances, seeing him every night and morning, and not having to make do with weekly encounters in a ballroom. She thought of Patrick Grady, seeing in her mind his pale, thin face. If the weight of circumstance hadn't intervened, 
she wouldn't be standing in a wayside ballroom, mourning the marriage of a road mender that she didn't love. For a moment, she thought she might cry. In her life, on the farm and in the house, there was no place for tears. Tears were a luxury, like flowers would be in the fields where the mangolds grow or fresh whitewash in the, in the scullery. Her father had more right to weep. In the ballroom of romance, she felt behind her, tear, her eyes the tears that it would have been improper to release in the presence of her father. She wanted to let them go, to feel them streaming on her cheeks. She wanted them all to listen to her while she told them about Patrick Grady and about the death of her mother and her own life since. She wanted Dan O'Ryan to put his arm around her so that she could lean her head against it. She wanted him to look at her in his decent way and to stroke with his road mender's fingers the backs of her hands. She might wake in a bed with him and imagine for a moment that he was Patrick Grady. She might bathe his eyes and pretend. Tell your father I was asking for him, Dan O'Ryan said. She smiled and she promised, as though nothing had happened, that she would tell her father that. And I'm going to pass to Kevin now. Thank you very much. I'm going to read a story, the, the opening of a story from the new collection, Last Stories. And that the wonderful news is that the collection is so strong consistently throughout. There isn't a dud note in it. It's, it's, it can stand with any of his collections, I think, from over the years, which is, is saying no small thing. I'm going to read from one of the, the Irish stories, so I'm going to have a go at an Irish accent. Um, I don't know how I'm going to get on with it, but we'll, 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 we'll try it anyway. I'll pick you up. So this is the, the opening sequence from a story called Giotto's Angels. On a stretch of pavement between Truman's Corner and Boswell's Hotel, a man asked a child if she knew where St. Ardo's was. The child passed the query on to another child, causing both of them to giggle. Don't worry about it, the man said, smiling at the children who at once ran away, having been warned about men who smiled. <laughs> An African woman who was passing was asked the same question and said there was a St. Joseph's out Springfield way. The man said it didn't matter. He was a man of 41, with finely chiseled features, red-brown hair and Wedgwood blue eyes that had once been alert but were not now. They hadn't been since a bright May morning in 2001 when he had found himself on a seat in one of the city parks, feeling as if he had just woken up. Bewildered, he had wanted only to remain where he'd found himself, but later in the day, a park keeper became concerned about him and summoned an ambulance. In the hospital he was taken to, it was discovered he could read and write. An amnesiac abnormality was diagnosed, and when, repeatedly, the man was asked his name, he was silent at first and answered in a garbled manner that was not understood. When he was searched, his pockets were empty. No wallet was found, no scraps of paper, no name tapes on his clothes no information of any kind about himself. He was thought to be a house painter, but the only evidence for this was traces of paint beneath his fingernails. No paint was found on his shirt cuffs nor anywhere on his clothes or shoes. He remained in the hospital's care for several days until one early morning he dressed himself and, unnoticed, went away. He was a picture restorer by profession and often seemed unusual even strange to other people, for his erratic memory caused him to rely on conjecture and deduction 
when privately he considered his life as much of it as he knew. It seemed to be a thing of unrelated shreds and blurs, something not unlike the damaged canvases that were brought to him for attention. His name was Constantine Naylor. He had forgotten that it was and wondered sometimes why that name came into his head. He liked it and tried to keep it there, but could not. That day he searched a city for St. Ardo's, not knowing what he was looking for nor why the two words were in his head. Outside the College of Surgeons he sought help from a bearded man. The man told him to clear off. He looked at a name written up, white letters on blue, Harcourt Street. The familiarity of the two colours, the oblong shape of the metal sign reassured him. Nailed into the brick that sign would be, he said to himself. And it was the same thing when he went on Hatch Street. Upper Charlemont Street, Northbrook, the Ranella Road. Nowhere here what you're looking for, a man sponging water in a shop window told him. Never was, a postman said. There was a key in one of his pockets. He didn't know why it was there or what it was to. He came to a church and stood outside it for a few minutes, reading the information on the blackboard by the gate. A memory came to him in the way it sometimes did, emerging from nowhere but very clear. And he knew the voice when he heard it in his mind. I'm asking you by, give us the counties of Ulster. Say the counties off for us, Broderick. Get up on your feet now. Broderick did. His awful old muffler half in rags. And Mr. Jameson said, take that thing off. Mr. Jameson was a drinker. He came out of O'Daly's footless. And if he'd see you, he'd go back in. Well, Broderick, you had me crucified, he said, when Broderick was silent, not knowing the counties. Donegal, Derry, Antrim, down, Mr. Jameson prompted, but the prompt was no help to poor Broderick. Then the memory slithered away and there was nothing. Appian Way was written up, Morehampton Road. Dogs were being walked, five of them together on strings. Don't be long out, Kitty said. Don't let the terrier off the lead till you come to the field. They'd bought the terrier from... Dwyer and Shannon's who bred them. He could remember that well. He tried to hold on to it. Dwyer's long, long face. The terrier picked out for the looks of it, but he couldn't hold it. Slippery, like some old snake it was. All the day he went about was hungry, had peas and mash with a sausage. He was brought a glass of cordial, pale pink, without taste. He examined the photographs outside the Corinthian cinema, crossed over into Hawkins Street and stood in a doorway. He waited for the dark and went slowly when he walked on. There was nothing in his mind except what he was looking for, the name carved on a pillar and gates. In the evening, usually, there'd be nothing. So I've chosen uh, one of my favourite novellas of all time, alongside Turgenev's uh, First Love, which this story quotes from. This is reading Turgenev published in the volume Two Lives uh, in 1991, set in a small uh, Irish town, west of Ireland town called Colleen, which you tell me you think is probably invented. I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, about 60 miles from Wexford. And it, it goes between 1955 and about 1990, 1989. And it's a story, uh, just to set the context, about the marriage of a farm girl called Mary Louise Dallin to a middle-aged draper named Elmer Quarry. And it's about what happens to the marriage. And the marriage is in contrast with a fragile romance she has with her invalid cousin, Robert, who she was at school with. Robert's mother, Mary Louise's aunt, married up, but she married a gambler. 
who left her with a big house but no money. I mean, one of the things the story is about is these minute gradations of class, and especially sort of within Protestantism in, in, in Ireland in the mid-20th century. And the secret and fragile love that they have is coloured by his devotion to the novels and stories of Turgenev, uh, which run through the novella like music. I'll just give you a, a tiny glimpse of that music before I read the, the bit I've chosen. All she had left was the echo of her cousin's voice, the way he had of pronouncing certain words, the timbre of his intonations, the images his voice conveyed. And this is him reading to her from First Love. I dreamed I was sad and sometimes cried, but through the tears and the melancholy, inspired by the music of the verse or the beauty of the evening, there always rose upwards like the grasses of early spring, shoots of happy feeling. Again and again his voice repeated it. Hers now joined in, for these were words they must learn by heart, he'd said. But that's not the, the bit that I'm, I'm going to, to read to you. The main bit I'm going to read to you is about the, the marriage, which is in the teeth of opposition from uh, Mary Louise's sharp-tongued sister, and also from Elmer Quarry's two aging and deeply resentful uh, sisters. So this is the wedding. The wedding took place on Saturday, 10th of September, 1955. It was a quiet occasion, but even so, Mary Louise had a traditional wedding dress and Letty, her sister, a bridesmaid's dress in matching style. There was a celebration afterwards in the farmhouse. Everybody sat down in the dining room, a room otherwise rarely used. Mrs. Dallin had roasted three chickens and there was spiced beef as well as bacon to go with them. Before the meal, the health of the bride and groom was drunk in sherry or whiskey. The Reverend Harrington, who had conducted the service, had conducted the ceremony, allowed himself a further homily. <laughs> Miss Mullover, the schoolteacher, now nearly 70, small and slight, affected by arthritis, had a special place at the gathering as the one-time mentor of both bride and groom. She'd been surprised when she'd heard of Mary <coughs> Louise's engagement to the Draper, but only because of the difference of generation. Nothing else about the present alliance caused her undue apprehension. But this sanguine view was not unanimously to be found among the wedding guests. <laughs> the continuing displeasure of Matilda and Rose, Elmer's sisters, was matched by Letty's, which took the form of a coldly distant manner and the firm rejection of any notion that the occasion was a festive one. <laughs> when, in March, Mary Louise revealed that Elmer had proposed and that she had accepted him, Letty hadn't spoken to her for three weeks, and when the silence was finally broken, Letty was so changed that Mary Louise wondered if she would ever again know the old relationship she'd had with her sister. I'm the lucky man, Elmer declared in a speech. There's no one for 10 miles around wouldn't agree with that. That was enough, he considered, so that he did not say any more. Last night, Rose had actually dropped to her knees, tears streaming, begging him to reconsider at this 11th hour. Matilda, grim-faced on the first floor landing, had announced that he would regret this folly for the rest of his days. Mary Louise Dallin hadn't a brain in her head. She was marrying him for his money, since it was a known fact that the Dallins hadn't two coins in the house to rub together. There was flightiness in her eyes. She would lead him a dance, if not in one way, then in another. She would drain him dry in ways he couldn't even imagine. She would upset him and disturb him. His sisters didn't go to bed until half past two, 
And even after he'd lain down exhausted, Elmer could still hear their ranting and Rose's weeping. In a final passion of energy the night before also, Letty had sought to dissuade her sister. In the warm darkness of the bedroom they shared, Mary Louise listened to the persistent murmur, edged with bitterness one moment and scorn the next. A picture was painted of her future in the house above the shop, the two sisters critical of every move she made, the man she was to marry never taking her side. She'd be no more than a maid in the household and a countergirl in the shop. There would be smells and intimacies no girl would care for. In the bedroom, she'd have to share with the heavily made draper. Her reluctance to meet his demands would be overruled. The three quarries would beadily eye her at mealtimes. <laughs> Dried up spinsters were always the worst. But by midday on the 10th of September, the pair were joined together. <laughs> doesn't augur very well. And just before Sally takes over, I'm just just to say that um, I think one of the things that we'll talk about this later that's extraordinary about this story is the way that he can move from that tender Turgenev romantic lyricism to that scene of, of the wedding and that language about the wedding and also the fact that he seems to be a ventriloquist. He doesn't seem to be there. Uh, he seems to be speaking as the sisters and as Mary Louise and as Elmer. So he's kind of disappeared. And of course um, they're right. And of course, <laughs> and of course they turn out to be absolutely right. <laughs> well, exactly. And, but the other thing about it, and again, we'll come back to that, is, is that he's completely inward with everybody. You, you know, you can sort of take the mickey out of it a bit as you're reading it. But he's, he's not judging any of these people. He's entirely inside them. Well, I had a bit of a quandary over what I should read. Hermione has bagged my very favourite um, of the William Trevor stories. But the one I felt I ought to read was the story of Lucy Galt, because the year it was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, I was one of the judges, and it was the favourite of the bookies, and I knew it wasn't going to win, because I was the only judge supporting that book. I very much wanted it to win. It didn't find favour with my other judges, and worst of all, the book that they chose, I was a dissenting judge, was The Life of Pi, which I had introduced them to <laughs> into the panel. So I felt doubly upset about Lucy Gold, which is a marvellous novel, but I have actually chosen My House in Umbria, which is the sort of odd counterpart to reading Turgenev in the same volume. And I chose it because, well, I'll, I'll give you the background. It's about a woman who's known as Mrs. Della Hunty, although she points out she's never been married, so she's not a missus, who's had a, a very um, unusual and traumatic uh, history. She's sold as a child to a, a pair of abusing, in all senses of the word, people. She escapes and does various uh, things in her life, including becoming an escort girl. And she finally acquires enough money to purchase a house in Umbria, along with her odd servant con colleague called Quinty, whose name I suspect mm. William Trevor took from the turn of the screw, because he's a very strange fish indeed. And one day she sets out on a train to conduct some business. She, she runs the house as a sort of 
cultured boarding house where she takes in a few guests and gives them a rather unusual experience. It's not a hotel, it's not a boarding house, but it's a, it's a, it's a place where she invites people to stay for money and run by Quinty. She sets off one day on a train and the carriage in which she travels is the target of a terrorist attack. Everybody dies save for herself and three other people, a small American girl who suffers from amnesia, an English general whose family die in, in the bomb explosion, and a young German man whose fiance is also killed in the explosion. And she takes them in, and the story is really about how these people respond to this traumatic experience, which has a a, a source which you only learn at the very end of the book. The other thing I should say is that since settling in the house, she has become a rather famous novelist, not the kind of novelist I would expect to find represented in the London Review of Books bookshop, <laughs> because it, so she is a severely romantic novelist. <laughs> because one of the things she does in order to get over her own traumas is always give any story a happy ending. And one of the reasons I chose this story is partly because it is about how a person can take an experience in their lived life and transform it through art. And one of the things about the book is that Trevor is, William Trevor is very kind to her in her role as a romantic novelist, the kind of novelist that I suspect he himself would not really choose to read. And it's also a demonstration of his great love of kindness in people. He has a great feeling for kindness, and that is the thing that I most respond to. So this is her, it's a first-person narrative. For the first time since the outrage, that's the terrorist attack on the train, I walked again in the early morning on the roads that now and again turn into dusty white tracks along the olive shrubs and the broom. Buongiorno, signora, an old woman with a stack of wood on her back greeted me. Buongiorno, signora, I called back. Once I made a terrible mistake in Sunday school when giving an answer to a question saying that Joseph was God. Someone began to titter, and I could feel myself going red with embarrassment. But Miss Alza Piedes said, no, that was an error anyone could make. <laughs> Miss Alza Piedes' long chest was as flat as a tabletop. Summer or winter, she never wore stockings her white bony ankles exposed to all weathers, it seemed a natural confusion to say that Joseph was God, Joseph being Jesus' father, and God being the father also. Of course, Miss Alza Piedi nodded, and the tittering ceased. I dare say remembering Sunday school was much the same as the general having tea in Mrs. Patch's cottage, and Ottmar, that's the German young man, recalling the comfort of his parents' house. It was a way of coming to terms, of finding something to cling to in the muddle. I dare say it's natural that people would. In all my time at Miss Alza Piedi's Sunday School, there was only one, that one uneasy moment before Miss Alza Piedi stepped in with kindness. Otmar similarly recalled being reprimanded because he'd overturned a tin of paint when the decorators came to paint the staircase wall and the hall, and again when he stole a pear from the sideboard dish. There was a moment of embarrassment 
in the dormitory too, the old man the general has spoken of, with his rows of blue blanketed beds and little boys in pyjamas. But these instances, dreadful at the time, were pleasant memories now. And they spread out palms before the donkey's feet, Miss Alza Piedi said. And while she spoke, you could easily see the figure of Jesus in his robes, with his long hair and his beard. The donkey was a sacred animal. You have only to note the cross on every donkey's back, Miss Alza Piedi said. All your lives, please note the black cross on that holy creature. The general had led his men to the battle fronts of the world, but always he'd returned to the girl he'd proposed to on a sunlit lawn whose tears of joy had stained the leather of his uniform. He had not looked at other women. Amid the banter and camaraderie of the barracks, his desires had never wandered, not even once, not even in the heat of the desert, with the promise of desert women only a day or two away. His happy marriage was written in the geography of the old man's face, a simple statement that for nearly a lifetime, two people had been as one. Isn't that much better, Otmar's mother said, the first time he wore spectacles, when a world of blurred objects and drifting colours acquired precision. In the oculist's room, he couldn't read the letters on the charts. The oculist had spectacles too and little red marks on the fat of his face, the left-hand side close to the nose. When Otmar asked his mother if he'd always have to wear spectacles now, she nodded and the oculist nodded also. When the oculist smiled, his white teeth glistened. The mother's coat was made of fur. It was Mary who began the business about donkeys, riding on one all the way to the stable of the inn. Joseph walked beside her, guiding the donkey's head, thinking about carpentry matters. <laughs> Mary understood the conversation of angels. De Joseph sawed wood and planed it smooth. He made doors and boxes and undertook repairs. To this day, I can see Joseph's sandals and Jesus' bare feet and the women washing them. To this day, I can see Jesus on the holy donkey in the picture above my bed. Fragments make up a life, my dear, Lady Daysmith says in Precious September. That's one of her books. For the general, Bodies lie where they have fallen on the sand, sunburnt flesh stiffening, soldiers from Rochester and Somerset. For the general, there are those gentle Cotswold bells, the organ booming evening hymns. There is the beauty of virginity specially kept, to be given on a wedding night, and drinks beneath that tree the child fell out of. For me, there is the stolid dog, the dampness of the beach, the seagulls coming nearer. There are the searchlights of 20th century fox and the soft roar of the lion. Western electric sound. In a room, a man removes an artificial leg and pauses to massage the stump. Across a street, a neon sign flashes red, then green. All through a half-forgotten night. First thing of all, though, there's a broken floor tile, brownish and smooth. Years after her time as a Sunday school teacher, Miss Alza Piedi 
becomes Lady Daysmith, shortened to a reasonable height, supplied with hair that isn't a nuisance, given a bosom. Lady Daysmith is old, of course. Miss Alza Piedi was scarcely 20 in the Sunday school. But a plain girl can grow old gracefully. Why ever not? The peep show of memory is what I mean by fragments. I hadn't been in my house more than a month before I caused the woman who had been the Sunday school girl to utter so. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Isn't it extraordinary how interested in amnesia he is, mm. given that he also writes so much about memory and people who are like Lucy Gault or in death in some, you know, people who are sort of in their past and can't get out of their past. Yes. It's as if they're these sort of extreme opposites always. In I think he's got this sense, you get it in all the books, I think, and in a way in all the things we've been reading, of life's potential terror. Mm. And uh -huh. its capacity to terrify mm. people so that they become, so that they flee inward. Mm. There's such mm. a lot of cruelty, isn't there? There is a lot of cruelty, but I think he's, uh, I think what you were saying about kindness is what I've always recognised yes. as well. Because I mean, you know, in the form of romance, the, there's a, you know, the one-legged father who is keeping her basically on the farm, he's, and yet he tries to give her what he can, which is to say, go to the dance, have your night. You know, he's, everybody is allowed a sort of little redeeming feature. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think that there are some really monstrous people going through this tender, gentle, lyrical writer. There are abusers, there are torturers, there are sadists, there are terrorists, there are... Oh, he has a sinister bent. <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah. yes, I mean, and a gothical kind of a flavour yeah, often yes, comes yeah. through as and well. And Felicity's journey, do you know? Yes. Do you know that one? Yes, that is very. But don't you think he's never sentimental about that? There, there was a phase, wasn't there, in the early seventies of particular kind of very slim novels that had a very sinister tone. The Children of Dinmouth, yes, I think, was one well, with a, a, a particularly memorable books. boy yes. villain in yeah. it. Timothy um, Gage. Yeah. Yes. He's interesting. We were talking a little downstairs before we come up about his style, about his prose style, and people remark sometimes on the kind of unusual syntax. You know, mm. and, and, and it's sometimes the clauses seem inverted from what you would expect. I, I think he treats the short story, especially almost as a musical form. Yes. He follows the melody of yes. each story as it goes along and he will allow 
the tune to dictate the story, to dictate mm. the, he allowed the music bring the meaning. He's, a, the writer. Said he was he's a, a writer who writes for the ear. Absolutely. Like, like Henry James. I mean, that's why he's a beautiful writer, uh, writer to read aloud. It's also you quite can hear hard the to cadence. follow sometimes. I mean, these, these transposed sentences. Yes. Mm. So there's some of these stories. I had to read talk. about four times. I don't know what it's like, mm. you know, condensing them for the radio. There's a story called The Unknown Girl, is it? Mm. And it took me about four readings to work out why she had run away from her home, what had happened mm. to her, because it's fantastically oblique. Well, well, what I think is, I think he's a great editor of his own work. I think he's a great mm. reducer. Yes. Uh, often for, for short story writers, the, the, the trick or the magic to it is you write that long first draft and then it's how much can I take away? Mm. Well, how much of the sc yeah. scaffolding can I remove? And he takes so much yes. away. And, and he leaves you sometimes yeah. what seems like quite an obscure yeah. picture and you have to go back over and we read that second last paragraph yeah. we were often yes. talking about <laughs> yeah. where he, he, he'll suddenly give you, he, didn't he famously say a short story doesn't need a plot but it needs a point yes. he said and you always get the point, point near the end yeah. he said it's the art of the glimpse yeah. yes yeah. He, um, but he was always very interesting about editing because every time I ever did an abridged version and that was an abridged bit of form of romance that I read to you and I, I thought can I do this and does it feel like it's sacrilege but actually he never, ever minded. He's the only writer I think I've known who was written to me after every production, a beautiful handwritten note, mm. sadly not in the stories oh, going yeah. out next week. But to say, thank you, and obviously I overwrote. And he was... <laughs> That's a little twist. <laughs> I didn't miss anything, he'd say. And he recorded, he recorded five stories from Cheating at Canasta with me, which was one of the absolute highlights of my career. And the... And the thing about that was he's, we came into the studio and obviously they need to be a certain length for Radio 4 so you slash them to pieces and then you say there's only 2,000 words as Kevin yeah. knows when we come in. You just can't go over that really. And he sat there and he said, oh, this is too much. I'm just cutting loads of it out. And I was going, no, please don't cut any more. It's too short now. But he was, he, because he began as a sculptor, I, I produced an interview mm. he did with John Tusa years ago on, on Radio 3 and in that he talked about his you know how much he loved to cut away mm. constantly he liked to be to chip and chisel and mm. to take out everything and he said to me once that that really of that it's exactly what you're saying Kevin that of that first draft that he wrote there would be almost nothing left and mm. that all the bits that he had loved in his first three or four reworkings would be gone because he would do 17 18 passes of a short story do you recognize that is that this business of endlessly i mean yeah i've just i've just cut my latest book down <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I quite like doing it, actually. Um, oh, I, oh editing I, is the fun part. I rather, but I quite yeah. enjoy cutting it down even yeah. further. Can I radio? ask a, a completely different question about Ireland? And you are the person to ask, because you're the one with the Irish accent. Because I can do the accent, yes. yeah. <laughs> so sometimes, I mean, the Ballroom of Romance and Reading to Ganyesh and Lucy Gold, we can think of so many stories which are set in that period, or at least begin in that period, which is sort of mid 20th century or early to mid 20th century Ireland where the, the Irish wars are tremendously much in people's memories and, and have affected profoundly like in Fools of Fortune the way they live the rest of their lives. Um, is he going to vanish now because in Ireland and elsewhere people are going to think he's only ever writing about the past. Is no, I, I don't believe so. Actually, actually, there's a process of beatification since his passing mm. going on mm. in Ireland. Um, he's held as, he always has been held as a kind of a saintly figure. Um, and there's an element of truth to that, but it's interesting when you look at his prose style. And I mean, there's nothing mysterious about someone's prose style. It's just a direct projection of your personality. And for this reason, you can't lie in fiction. Mm. When you make it up, it all comes out. 
on the page and his personality Dr. comes out Freud every, would agree with you. He comes out on every page <laughs> that he writes and there's a warmth there and an empathy and a kindness. And the but, kindness. But he also has that glint of ice, the necessary, the famous shard of ice in the heart mm. where he can present all of our follies in a very clear, calm way with a kind of an askance kind of look at us but going. Do, but isn't it, you, don't yeah. you think, I, I mean, I just want to pick up on the kindness because yes, there are the monsters and they are the atrocities, but the, one of the reasons I like um, my house in Umbria is it, it is about that the mixture of the light and the dark within the human psyche and it is about those tiny acts of, of redeeming kindness that people sure. and she's so outrageous to each other. but at the same time we rather love her don't we oh, I totally love her <laughs> totally love her it's well, just I think think can I just go on about mm. Ireland just for a second mm. before we lose it because I just want to push you on it because you say he's being beatified mm. and he's not going to be forgotten but do you not as a contemporary Irish novelist and writer yourself, do you not feel, oh, let's get away from, you know, all those small towns in West Cork and... No, I mean, and actually, I, 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 I know his part of the country especially yeah. well. And, and I had a strange introduction to him when I read him first in a serious way. I'd say in my early 20s and didn't take to it at all because it felt too close to home. Yeah. I remember, I think it might have been in this collection that Di has here. I remember there's a description of a kind of a father in front of a fireplace with all the kind of bitterness of the race and nation on his shoulders, slowly rotating one thumb around the other. And I remember kind of sitting back in horror from the page, page going, Jesus God is my father. You know, it, it was just too close in. And it took a while actually before I went back. And what you find is, well, he, he has naturally and properly has that reputation for an empathy and a kindness, but there's a lot of roguery in there as well. And there's a glint of lovely kind of comic malice that often comes into the stories and really kind of enlivens them and spices them. Do you think he changed in the way that he wrote about Ireland? Because in some ways, Lucy Galton, and particularly Love and Summer, the, they, it became a softer, slightly Trevorized sort of view of, of, a, of an Ireland, I think, which is different to, to the, the piss and the... And they have to live on into the present, don't they? They do. Um, so Lucy Galton sort of having stayed in this house for reasons we won't give away, um, sort of finds she's surrounded by people on cell phones. And yes, exactly. About well, I, yeah, but I don't think he really entered... I mean, in, that la in the last collection, in Last Stories, I mean, there's not a mobile phone really in this. It's, but but, it, but yeah. still, I think what's so brilliant about him is that he can write these stories which are not of the modern world. I think this collection <coughs> is, has a sort of timeless quality about it. But what What's brilliant is the universality of the way mm. he looks into the human heart, and that it doesn't matter that people don't have the technology and things. But actually, in some ways, all these stories hark back to a um, there's a sort of timelessness uh, about their sort of period of 60s, 70s, 80s, or whatever. It's but interesting, actually, now. that that story, Giotto's Angels, yeah. is set in a contemporary Dublin, and it kind of sometimes feels like a 50s Dublin yes. That, yes, that's yes, been yes. described. Yes. Yes. But I think so. I think he's actually quite successful usually in drawing in contemporary references. I know that in John McGahern, a contemporary of his, in one of the late novels, he suddenly starts talking about an episode of Blind Date that's going on in the corner. And you're going, oh, Jesus, don't do this. Yes, you don't yes, need yes, to yes. do this. We, we don't I need John McGarren on I Blind Date. I completely agree. Um, I think he rather elegantly sidesteps having to do that. You yeah. don't really worry, and you but, kind of don't you know, worry which decade you're in. But he's so wonderful at slow time. You know, I was thinking about your general and that wonderful, those inset stories you get, like a patchwork quilt where you have a story inside a story inside. And the wonderful thing in, in my house in Umbria, you get her romantic novels but you get the stories and the backstory of all yeah. those people and the thing with the general is that that long long marriage, that wonderful and, marriage. And there, there sort of, there's a wonderful story uh, in a volume called After Rain where this couple have been married for 40 years and he says 
Um, he wants her to die first, so that yes. she, so that he can do the suffering. Yes. He doesn't want her to have the yes. suffering, and it's just an extraordinary. Mm. What he's great on actually, it occurs two or three times in the stories in the new book. He talks a lot about about these kind of the stories we tell ourselves about love and romance in our lives, you know, and often you have a character who holds on to some shred of some romance that almost happened and would have changed everything. And in fact, it's the failure of that love that is the only thing that keeps it alive. Mm. It's the fact that it never happened yes. is the only thing that keeps it vivid and vivacious yes. in the imagination. So do you think that's what she, he does in that, my house in Umbria? That's how she kept herself alive with these, with the stories that she knows yeah are not true, but are woven out of the... And so very often it's about yeah. the stories we tell ourselves, isn't it? But is fantasy yeah. all right then? I sometimes fantasy, living in a fantasy world, like Mary Louise, and they think she's mad. And, um, but is, so is fantasy all right? I think is, it's is it okay I, to live in a fantasy well, world. Well, I don't think it's one thing or the other. I think all <laughs> he's doing is showing how people use it. And in some ways, people use it creatively. Yes. And in other ways, yeah. it's an installation. I mean, he's not a... He is, he's always he's not a, he's not an either or writer. Mm. He's a this and that writer. Mm. So you get angels, and you get a psychopathic child. Yes, mm. you know, the there's a lot story. of lot of amputated yeah. limbs. Do you notice? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I noticed that because my mother was a double amputee. But I mean, I, many a, a William Trevor, you will have an amputated. Yeah. Limb. I mean, we talk, we mentioned Freud, who famously said you can't psychoanalyze Irish people because where would you start? Uh, <laughs> It's, it's, it's a bag of snakes if you open that up. But I think William Trevor does, you know, uh, on the page. While keeping the himself very yeah. private. So, for instance, I don't know whether he's religious or not. You know, there are angels in these stories. Oh, I think there's something. And, and there's a sense of mystery and miracles. I, th I think I'm art, sure art is the religion there. The mm -hmm. Art's the religion, yes. the transforming. That's he's got a sense, but I mean, this. Joseph and the, there's something about about the metaphysical. Let's call it that. You know, he's not ordinarily religious. He's not conventionally religious, but he has a sense of other dimensions that affect people. His characters are porous. They're very thin-skinned. Mm. And in his depiction of place, actually, it, it, it can sometimes seem almost surreal. He yeah. gives you so little. Just these little. These the little slashes of description in and the story that I was reading from, and you get it. You know, yeah. you, the, the world is built very, very economically. Yeah, out um, of fragments, as she as fragments. As but it's also yeah. then it cut that back and back and back. Yeah, One of the things I'm most fascinated by in 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 the writing is is the representation of black women. There are two novels in particular which which just surprised me completely, just as something that that I didn't expect that Trevor would have a go at. And I just wondered if you have a uh, a sense of, of what you make of of them. I, I would I think it's fair to say that perhaps perhaps a writer wouldn't quite represent these characters quite this way if they were writing today um, but on the other hand there is a real vividness and and an extraordinariness about about just stepping out of, of the comfort journey. zone the, 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 the religious woman in Felicity's yeah, journey uh, yeah. uh, yes and there's Miss uh, what's the story that marvellous short story my answer to that would be I think he's a writer of the world you know people try to claim him as it were I mean he is one of those writers like Joyce who went away from Ireland mm. but continues to write about Ireland but he's an enormously worldly, cosmopolitan, travelling, European writer. So I think that there's no kind of person 
that he wouldn't turn his yeah. hand to. Well, I think, but I think it's, a, I mean, he's got tremendous compassion and humanity and interest in people. And I think actually, and he's incredibly observant, I think. And so I'm, I, I, I don't think he would be frightened of trying to get under the skin of, of a character he thought was interesting. I don't think that would have yeah. worried him because I think his interest was in what made people that you haven't thought about very much tick. And I, and I think it's always trying to explore that. And I think he saw the commonalities between people more. And that, that might mean he isn't perfect at representing these characters always. I think, too, though, he's somebody who recognised that different cultures do produce different kind of psychological makeup. You know, I mean, yes. we saw it in the Which royal is, wedding, didn't we? You know, mm. a very you know a, the preacher who's got lots of people's backs up by being enthusiastic in a way that didn't seem to be quite British. Has <laughs> he got people's backs up? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think he's great. Lots of people loved him, <laughs> okay. but lots of people didn't. Yeah. But he and, also, and, and I think what that what was interesting. I think what Trevor would be interested in. Well, I would just. I mean, you know, I, if I, I'm a novelist, and I would be too, is the way in which this can happen that you can actually. You can, within different cultures, get a different kind of psychological manifestation, which which can be very disturbing, or can be very um, in, enlivening or in, illuminating. And he also gives a voice to people who you haven't heard from, or you don't know how their inner voices will go. So in the last stories, there's an extraordinary story called The Crippled Man, which is not mm. a title that everyone would use either. Yeah. And it's got two Eastern European... Yeah. Uh, they're I'll pretending to be house painters, actually. They don't yeah. know how to paint a house at all. Mm. They're kind of just going from one job to mm. another. And it's extraordinary how he gets inside the head of those two people. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> what, what he does have, I, I, the pastors you refer to aren't fresh in my, in my mind, so I can't really comment on them directly. What he does have is an extraordinary ear that allows him in such a wide variety of characters. I think it seems never to, never to slip. I mean, every novel on the shelves here, every book has to be considered in some degree in the context of the time it was written, um, which is very different from now, so. I wondered if, as writers, you were conscious of his influence on you, if you credit him with influence on you. <laughs> um, I think every writer that I really admire has had an effect on me, in one way or another. Um, I, I wouldn't have said his influence was was obvious, but I think particularly the cadence of his prose. I mean, I have always tried to write for the ear. Um, he is one of the writers that taught me to listen to how a piece of prose rolled out, and not just the way it came through the eye, but came through the ear. Mm. I think his interest, which is not unusual among writers in the dispossessed and the lonely, has certainly encouraged my own interest in, in those sort of people. The reason I chose the particular passage is his interest in human kindness in, in very small, minute detail. I mean, there's a great saying of William Blake's, if you would do good, do it in minute particulars. And I feel that's something that William Trevor understood. And it's something that certainly affected what I attempt to do, for better, for worse, in my own work. Yeah, that, that prose rhythm is very alluring. When, when I finally did get into the stories, I'd say my late 20s, with the great famous Penguin Collected, I found it almost problematic because you, you try to ape those rhythms on the page if you're reading them too, too, too closely. I think actually, yeah, Sally mentioned loneliness. I think he's the great writer of loneliness. You know, it makes him especially 
um, suited to the short story as a form because as a form the short story anyway tends to hover towards the great void of lonesomeness as one of its great preoccupations and he, and he maps that, that so precisely. Why does the story? I don't know. I mean, we could, we could be here for a night just thinking about what what the, the short story and loneliness. But I I think it, it's the case. And so when you write one yourself, when you when you when you try it, it's it just so, seems to be one of the emotions that that draws the story writer to because it. Because it is lonely, always. right? Yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I have a collection of quotes that I've kept kind of forever, and I was looking through, and one of my quotes that I treasure is from the Children of Dinmouth, which is an early book, and it's about a a very odd boy called Timothy Gedge and there's this bit that I've you know I think probably has affected high work I mean not consciously but unconsciously the boy would stand in courtrooms with his smile he would sit in the dark offices of social workers he would be incarcerated in the cells of different jails by looking at him now you could sense that future and his eyes reminded you that he had not asked to be born isn't that hard? Yeah, I think that's brilliant. You know, this is the compassion. However, people are in his novels; they have not asked to be yes, born. I, I think also he always said he was a short story writer first and, and a novelist second. And I think I think his compression, even within the novels, and, and the most—I mean, the no, none of the novels are enormous at all, but they are all—you know—they're tight. They're the right size. But to me, yeah. yes. But to me, the stories are, are really. He, kept, he does so much in the stories in such a time. He came at me through via partly via two women writers who I'm very absorbed by. One is Elizabeth Bowen, who he obviously knew and came from. And when I interviewed him once, he reproached me for muddling up the, the classes. He said, I was the kind of boy that would go and pick up the tennis balls on the court at Bowen's court. You know, don't get this wrong. Don't don't lump all this Anglo people together. So that was a lesson to me. And the other was Penelope Fitzgerald, who's who's a, a huge admirer of Trevor, and she she admired the value he places on innocence, the way he creates a magical sense of time passing. I'm quoting her, and it's just what you said. His interest in the dispossessed all who despair but do not care to admit it. Yeah. And that's that's a wonderful echo track. I, I think, think do not children. care to admit it. It's yeah. very, very <laughs> exactly. He's yeah. he's also very, very good on children, I think. He writes very good on children. incredibly well. And that's wonderful story, Polly had a, do you remember that yeah. thing, which is um, about a dog that they put on a lilac and goes out oh, to see it. It's just a very powerful uh, and it's full of imagery and, and uh, but the children in that are extraordinarily well done I think I think it's a test of a novelist actually how good I mean Penelope Fitzgerald is also very good on children yes very yeah. very, very yes, good and uh, Tessa Hadley is a really wonderful to children. Yeah. This I think we're on this axis of kindness and cruelty yes. yeah. Yeah. I, I just wondered with the, with them this is the his last collection of stories and as Miss Spears has talked about his uh, own strict self-editing. Um, did he out uh, the stories in the new book exactly as he, as he left them, or has there been another editor who's who's gone through them to prepare them for publication? Does anyone know? Well, I think so several of them had been published before, oh, um, had they? Yeah. and he, he held on to them a very long time. I know he was reluctant to, to let them go, and it was really Jane's wife and his sons who decided afterwards that they would publish him. But, but I, I don't imagine there was there would have been very much for past, but I believe the editor is here. We all basically realised that he didn't want to let them go because he didn't want to embark on a new book. Um, <laughs> and they were very much, as I, I mentioned to the, to the panel earlier, 
when we received the typescript, it still had all his markings on and he would flip a phrase or add a word or... Um, and then the final piece of the puzzle was his literary executor who knew him very well, read through the script and, and looked for any anomalies, but essentially it's exactly as he would have wanted it. Mm. And I think what, what is wonderful when you read them is it's his voice is back again. I mean, I'm sure we all mm. felt that, but it was mm. like, oh, he's here again, you know, which I, I was, it was very, very poignant yeah. recording them, thinking these are the last ones. So it's mm. wonderful to hear it Love again. to think that one of them was actually left on his door. That's great. I think all that remains is to thank our four wonderful guests this evening. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.